Hey everybody, Craig here. Uh, just a couple quick notes before we get the show started. Uh, first of all, if you uh, go to our blog at thinkrelevance.com slash blog, you'll find a couple interesting things. Uh, one is you can find uh, where you'll see uh, our relevancers in December. Uh, today is this, uh, today's November 30th, so December's right around the corner. Uh, we've got Mike Nygaard at Yao 2012, both in Brisbane from the 3rd to the 6th, and also in Sydney from the 6th to the 7th. Uh, he's giving a bunch of presentations on uh, request path mapping, architecture without an end state, and he's giving a workshop on production-ready software. Uh, good stuff. You want to check that out if you happen to be in Australia. Uh, also, later this uh, later in, in December, the 13th, we have Stuart Sierra speaking up on uh, at the science of big data, breaking down big data with Datomic. So that's good stuff. Um, additionally, on the website, you'll also find uh, on the blog uh, a discount code if you want to pick up uh, Stuart Sierra and Luke Vanderhart's new book, uh, Closure Script Up and Running. We've got a discount code for that. Um, and there's also a pretty cool episode, uh, a, a pretty cool post by Justin that you might want to check out, uh, kind of around our philosophy of um, consulting and about, you know, a time where we found that it was actually better to talk about maybe not doing the thing that that we were getting paid to do. Anyway, it's pretty cool. You should check it out. Um, so anyway, go check out the blog uh, at thinkrelevance.com/blog. Check out our website thinkrelevance.com. Um, but on to the episode, and I have to give an extra special thanks to our guest, Jason Rudolph, on this one. Uh, so we recorded the episode, and it was really fun, and I looked down at my microphone, the little uh, MP3 recorder I have, and realized I had filled up the card uh, like a dummy. Uh, so <laughs> he was kind enough to re-record the whole episode uh, with me, and thankfully it came out just as well the second time. So uh, hope you'll enjoy it, and uh, I'll leave you to it. Thanks for listening. to Think Relevance, the podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 29th, 2012. And today we have as our guest, Jason Rudolph. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. It's great to have you here. I've actually wanted to have you on for a really long time now. Um, as you know, I have to ask you a question to start off, which is what should we play for the intro music? Well, one of my greatest joys when it comes to music is absurd cover songs. I like to collect them. Awesome. And for some reason or another, totally, I have no idea where this comes from, but my fellow co-workers at Relevance are certain that I'm Alanis Morissette's biggest fan. I don't know anything about this. Uh, she may or may not have a new album out this week. I may or may not have listened to it on the way in. Who knows? Um, but I think we should, uh, we should start the show off with Alanis Morissette's masterful reinterpretation of My Humps by the Black Eyed Peas to combine those two things. Well, all right. And uh, I know it's not exactly a mashup, but those are, uh, some people might know, a kind of a part of relevance culture. So I think that's in, definitely in the spirit. <laughs> Fantastic. And I, I've mentioned this before on the show, but we have, um, you know, we have cover art for every episode that uh, primarily Michael has been doing for mm -hmm. us, and they are great. I mean, I think they're fantastic. But uh, 
I can sort of maybe picture Atlantis Morissette making an appearance on on yours. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Um, well, great. So thank you so much for coming out today. Like yeah, I said, I've really, me. really been looking forward to, to speaking with you on the show uh, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one is I just think um, you're a really interesting guy, and I have a lot of things that I would talk to you regardless. But also, um, you are the very first uh, Relevance employee. I mean, it was Justin Stu started the company, and then the, one of the first things they did as they started to grow was to hire you, Right. Uh, that is that is technically true, although I consider it to be somewhat of an accounting uh, trivia. They were working with Glenn Vanderberg and a couple other contractors at the time, <clears throat> and uh, I don't think Glenn Vanderberg will take any offense to say, me saying this, but uh, I'm more organized and more on the ball than he is. Yeah, that's uh... <laughs> and so I happened to get my paperwork in before him. Gotcha. Um, so he was you know a week or two after me. I, I want to come back to that uh, more organized thing in a little bit. Um... So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, you're in the developer role now, um, primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that you've been working with a fair amount recently, to the extent that you actually gave a talk about it recently, is ClojureScript. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forget where exactly you gave that talk. It was at the Triangle Closure Users Group. Okay. And what was the, the title was? The title was ClojureScript Experience Report. Okay. So this, if I remember the premise was basically that you've been working with it enough now to have formed some opinions about the experience, I guess. Uh, well, the the, um, the title experience report was very intentional. I think back to uh, the closure conj last year. I think I, I think it was Stuart Sierra who was encouraging the community to build libraries, not frameworks. And his argument for that was, we don't know enough yet to build frameworks. And I thought that was interesting, and it sort of implies some amount of learning or, or maybe even evolution that happens before you're ready to build a framework. And so when ClojureScript came out about 13 months ago, it was uh, July of last year, you know, it shipped with uh, a Hello World example, and it shipped with uh, a sample app called Twitter Buzz, but that was about it. And we, don't, we haven't really seen a lot of people writing about ClojureScript, and we haven't seen a lot of open source examples of ClojureScript apps. So how do we get that experience in order to know what a framework looks like? And so the, the evolution I'm imagining in my mind is something, uh, something like Hello World uh, evolves to experience report, evolves to patterns where you can see commonalities across uh, those experiences or across projects that you're looking at uh, to you know, maybe one day uh, coalescing those things into a framework. And when ClojureScript 1 came out earlier this year, which you and Brenton worked on mm-hmm. together, um, and I, I would not have even taken ClojureScript for a spin if there wasn't something like ClojureScript 1 to help me get started. That's good to know. Um, I said, hey, you know, let me, let me take this for a spin. And uh, there was an app that I wanted to build. Uh, so I decided to build that using ClojureScript. And uh, the talk was essentially a walkthrough of the approach that I used. Very much not a, hey, here's how you should do things, but like, Here's how one guy did things one time, and, and maybe this is useful to you. Uh, and I'd certainly welcome your feedback. And so I, I walked through uh, the approach that I used from a design standpoint. You know, how did I model state? How did I ma- uh, manage data flow, control flow, things like that? Uh, and then just talked about my impressions of working with Closure Script. You know, what was what was excellent? Uh, what was what were some of the rough patches, and what were some of the pleasant surprises? That's cool. Um, so what was the application? Um, so uh, I'll give a brief backstory. 
So for about uh, three and a half years now, I had been, <clears throat> or last November, uh, uh, back to, it had been about three years at that point when uh, iOS 5 came out. Um, prior to that, for about three years, I had been tracking all of my workout data in this app that I paid $3 for. And one of the things that was really cool about that was, you know, I would get to the gym and I would I'd pull out this app and I always wanted to uh, know that I was what I was doing today was preferably uh, a little bit more, pushing myself a little bit harder than before, but at least having a baseline to see where I should be starting. So I'd, I'd pull up this app and it would say, oh, you know, you did this much weight with this many reps on this exercise last time. And if I had, had any, added any notes like, oh, you should definitely increase the weight or maybe stay at this level next time. Uh, so I found this really useful and I had three years worth of data in it. And then iOS 5 came out uh, and this app that I paid $3 for just totally slowed down and got all crashy and the developer was gone with my $3. I want my $2, oh, $3 in this case. <laughs> um, so I, suffice it to say, I was incredibly angry. This was just, this was highway, ro- highway robbery. It's intolerable. Yeah, intolerable. Um, but it was, uh, the timing was good because I said, you know, I, I still want an app that can do this. Luckily, I was able to, to get my data out. And I said, maybe it'd be fun to build, but build this with ClojureScript. And so I just built an app that lets me do that very simple thing uh, in ClojureScript. And, and it works, and I use it now. Uh, it is what I use when I go to the gym. It does 25% of what I would like it to one day do, but it does the 25% that I, that I need to fill that particular uh, desire. Cool. So you were able to build this thing. I was. And it's built on top of ClojureScript 1, and... And I was able to build it because ClojureScript 1 provided a good starting point. And uh, thanks to having resources like Britton Ashworth to be able to go tap on the shoulder and say, hey, here's something I'm running into. What do you think about this? Or walk up to the whiteboard with him and sort of show a problem that show him a problem that I was having and get his feedback on that or suggestions. And being able to uh, ping Stuart Sierra, Luke Vanderhart, those guys, that was awesome. Sure. Um, so I, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but I was able to build it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun to build. And it is the app that I use uh, now for tracking my workouts. So you, I think you said one of the reasons that you wanted to do this was to uh, learn ClojureScript. And True. you actually kind of took that and turned it into... Um, I think you called it an experience report. Is that right? That is right. And that was a you gave that presentation at uh, I forget which group. Yeah, uh, that was the Triangle Closure Users Group. Okay, and so that was kind of um, if I remember right, it was the you, you sort of summarized what it was like for you to come up, walk up to ClojureScript and learn it and try to build an app. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you had some sort of you know things that were good and things that you learned and things that were bad. I wonder if you could kind of dip into that list for us a bit. Sure. Yeah, I tried to I tried to break it down sort of the way you're describing it, where I talked about um, some things that just really felt like a slam dunk using ClojureScript, uh, some rough spots, and some things that I described as pleasant surprises. I think of those as items that I was worried about or concerned about whether I would be able to overcome them with ClojureScript. And it turned out that I didn't need to worry about those things. Those are actually my my favorite things to talk about, especially since uh, I had a lot of fun uh, working with ClojureScript. And 
since those are worries that I feel like need not be worries, I you know I have I enjoy telling people about those. Well, particular let's come ones. let's come back to those though okay. because maybe it would be cool to end on a high note. Um, okay. So if we could, I'm curious what the challenges are, or what the mm. what the things that you ran into that were you know actually negative about it or or whatever. Okay, so working with ClojureScript, one of the things that was noteworthy was that it's really a blank slate. Uh, this is coming from a background of having spent most of the, the last several years working with Rails, working with an opinionated framework that has a lot of defaults, and then going to ClojureScript. And it's really green pastures, wide open spaces. One of the awesome things about that is that you can do whatever you want. You can choose how you want to handle state management and how you want to handle data flow and how you want to handle control flow. One of the really challenging things about it is that you have to choose how you want to handle mm-hmm. state management, mm-hmm. data flow, control flow, things like that. Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun, but it was challenging. And I, I say that to sort of set the stage where m- my background is coming from something like Rails, and here I am working with something like ClojureScript. And ClojureScript 1 uh, provides a decent starting point, but it's not intended to be a framework. Right. Right. Uh, explicitly while, says that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you remember its original days, it was called the ClojureScript Starter Kit, uh, right. not, yep. not a framework. Mm-hmm. And so if I were to compare ClojureScript to Rails, it's totally not fair. It'd be more appropriate to compare like ClojureScript to Ruby or ClojureScript to JavaScript or something like that. But nevertheless, that's sort of what I'm thinking about when I think about the amount of plumbing that I'm used to having in front of me. Well, and I, I, mean, I think it's fair because, um, you know, you can talk about comparing apples to apples, but at the end of the day, you want to build something, mm-hmm. and those are both tools that you could choose. Right. And so... Uh, with my app, I needed to do a lot of interacting with a, a third-party API. So I was interacting with the, the API at Mongo HQ, and all of the interaction back and forth there is via JSON. So I either send JSON data to them or, uh, or process JSON data that they send back to me. And, of course, I didn't want to work with JSON data when I'm just dealing with data structures inside uh, the majority of the app. So inside the majority of the app, I'm working with closure data. And when I get ready to send it over to uh, Mongo HQ, I need to turn it into uh, JavaScript. Well, going from um, from JavaScript to Closure Data is is easy because uh, it, it, there's a very clear mapping between you know this particular JSON structure would map to this in ClojureScript. and so ClojureScript provides a function for going from JS to CLJ, but it. It actually doesn't provide one for going the other way, which was a surprise to me at first. I understand now that there's a reason for that, which is that there are concepts in Clojure uh, or Clojure Script where it's not obvious how you would want to map that over to JavaScript. Right, like sets or something. Uh, the sets, uh, especially with um, with uh, with 1.4, some of the uh, the additional re- things you can do with the reader reader literals. Sure, reader literals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'm exposing uh, some of my closure noobness. Uh, I'm certainly no closure expert, but it's been fun. It's been fun to learn. Well, I still needed that functionality. I still wanted to work with closure data and go to uh, to JSON. And uh, fortunately, uh, there are open source examples that you can go out uh, and see. Uh, specifically, uh, the one that I found was Chris Granger has a library called Fetch. 
actually has a bunch of libraries. If you're interested in looking at ClojureScript, I think it's worthwhile to look at uh, Chris Granger's stuff. He's the light table guy too, right? He, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think so. I'm pretty sure that he is, yeah. And so he has this library called Fetch, and it has a util namespace, and one of his utilities, in fact, the only one at the time that I grabbed this, was something that goes from Closure Data to JSON, and it works for my purposes, so, so I grabbed that. Uh, but that was some plumbing that, you know, coming to it brand new, I was like, well, that's kind of weird that that's not there. Sure. Uh, there were other things, like since the fact, uh, since I was very frequently going back and forth between JSON and Closure Data, uh, I did not want, and I wanted the majority of my app to just be able to work with Closure Data. I wanted the abstraction that goes from Closure Data to JSON and how you make those requests to be in one place. Mm. Well, uh, Closure uh, or Closure Script doesn't give you anything that says like you know here is a way that you make an XHR request that has a content type of JSON or even something that makes it really obvious how you would create your, the content type. Well, the good news is uh, using some of the things that were in ClojureScript 1 and piecing together some of the items that are in the Google Closure library, which ClojureScript is built on top of, uh, it was easy enough to put those things together into the higher-level abstractions that I want. They're pretty straightforward. I mean, we're talking like two or three lines each. Uh, But it was plumbing that I needed to build. Sure. But that was pretty much the scenario with all of that that sort of infrastructure. It was find a couple things in the Google Closure library or uh, a wrap, you know, this or that thing that's available in JavaScript itself. Put that in a Closure script function so that you're hiding away that, mm-hmm. that sort of wrapping. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound too painful. I mean, no. I'm sure it was one of those things where it's like... Look, look, look. Oh, it's not there. Look some more. Right. So were, was there anything? Was that like the most significant challenge that you had? I would say the other thing that really stood out to me was uh, the testing situation mm-hmm. with ClojureScript. And for anybody who's done any JavaScript testing, that's not a great story either, especially not if you're coming from uh, something like you know, basic unit testing with Clojure or with Ruby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a mu- that's a much nicer experience. Anytime you need to do anything that involves like firing up a browser, uh, it's painful. It will get better, but it was rough enough that it was easy to make excuses about things that you didn't want to test. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I care deeply about testing of it to the point of having given talks and, and written about testing and, and, you know, trying to convince people about ways that have, ways of testing that uh, are, that have more uh, positive trade-offs than others. Mm-hmm. So I definitely consider that a rough spot. Okay. It, it's better. It's getting better. Uh, the M003 branch of ClojureScript 1 has some testing improvements. It has an example of a full-stack integration test. So that's useful. And it's worth looking at that, but it still has some room to grow. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, that, that was, I mean, I worked with Brenton a little bit on ClojureScript 1, and that was one of the really cool things I thought he came up with was that the potential that's in there and the, and this, this, the demonstration of the concept of, um, you know, if you have this type of app that you actually could drive both the server side and the client side in a mm-hmm. single unified test. So that, like, you know, obviously it's not where we'd want it to be, but you can kind of see that horizon. It, it seemed like a really, really cool thing to me when I saw that. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was talking to uh, Clinton Dreisbach about this, and, and he asked a good question, which was, well, if the challenge is writing tests in Clojure or ClojureScript that are going to drive the browser and assert on things going on in the browser, you can do that in Ruby. I'm like, yeah, and it would be slightly better in Ruby. We do that regularly in Ruby. 
but that's not why I'm doing this project. Sure. Right. Yep. Absolutely. It was a learning experience mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so what were some of the things that you learned that were, as you said, pleasant surprises? Yeah, pleasant surprises. So things that I was worried about that now I don't worry about and would encourage other people to not worry about. So whenever you think about compile a language that's going to uh, compile from the source language down to some other language, and you're going to get the errors reported to you in that other language, and then you have to map back where that problem uh, occurred in your in the, in your source language, that's always tricky. I remember when um, when CoffeeScript uh, first came out, that was one of the concerns people were expressing, especially when it got added to Rails as the default. People were like, "What are you doing? How are we going to handle this?" And going back even farther, when Google Web Toolkit first came out and people were, uh, I mean, the whole premise of Google Web Toolkit is that you write code in Java Swing and it gets compiled down to JavaScript. <laughs> that still seems insane to me. Yeah, which runs on the browser. Um, and how do you map that back to the Java Swing code? You know, so I was worried about that, uh, especially since I was new to Clojure Script and reasonably new to Clojure. I'm, okay, so I, I know that I'm not going to write error-free code. There's going to come a time when there's an error and I see it uh, in the browser as a JavaScript error. How am I going to track that back? Well, it didn't take too long for me to write code that <laughs> that tested that out. Sure. But the good news is, like ever since the very first time that that's happened and on through to today, there's never been a single time when an error has occurred uh, in the browser, and it's taken me more than... It's never taken me more than 60 seconds to track that back to the exact line mm. that was causing the problem in ClojureScript. And there's really two reasons for that. Uh, one is you're working in development mode, which compiles down to... Uh, there's a couple aspects of the way it compiles down that make it easy to track back. One is if you have a file, let's say it was called logging.cljs, that's going to compile down to logging.js. And you're going to see that the error happened in logging.js. Okay, that's already a clue. Sure. Uh, the other thing is the way it's compiled in JavaScript, the names of the closure functions are still there enough uh, that it's pretty easy to track things. Right, back. in development mode, that's mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Right, and I haven't had a situation where I'm trying to debug something in advanced compiled production mode. Right. And if I were, you know, I would... Uh, figure out what the steps were, and then I'd go do it in development you, mode. Now, in your app, did you wind up using the development mode code, or did you compile to advanced using advanced compilation and deploy that? So, in production, uh, I do use the the advanced compilation mode for it. It, it, it. One of the, by the way, we were talking about this earlier, and mm-hmm. you and you described um, an aspect of the app to me that I thought was just super cool, which is that. Uh, so, I think the question I asked you was something like. Oh, are you using Clojure on the back end? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wonder if you could share with our listeners the answer you gave me there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the short answer is there is no back end, but you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> the natural follow-up to that is, uh, are you using local storage? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how does that work? Well, you know, luckily at Relevance, there are people that are good at, uh, at sysadmin stuff and operations stuff and, and DevOps I, I do have an interest in that. It just doesn't list. It doesn't rank at the uh, top five things that I'm interested in. Uh, so it's nice to be able to build something. Uh, you have the option to build something with ClojureScript and ClojureScript 1 that is basically client only. So in my situation, uh, I am building something that compiles completely to static assets. It compiles to HTML, CSS, uh, some images, and advanced compiled JavaScript. And I can drop that on any you know 
cheapo web server. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is you go to onerepmax.jasonrudolph.com or anywhere else um, where you happen to have deployed this. That's where I have it. And the first time you hit it, it's going to download all that static content to your browser. And, and that's actually the last time that the browser will talk to uh, onerepmax.jasonrudolph.com. After that, uh, all of the data comes from and goes to uh, MongoHQ's API. So they provide a fully RESTful API to their database. Um, so, for example, you know you make GET calls to, to get data out, and you can specify query parameters. You do posts or deletes to uh, create records or delete them, respectively. Uh, and so that's been really cool. You download everything, and uh, MongoHQ takes care of all the data persistence, and I don't have to worry about that. I can deploy this anywhere. Even I can deploy it on Dropbox if I wanted to. Yeah, that's just super cool. I mean, I, and I'm, you know, I don't. It's the old story. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. But um, and you could have done it in JavaScript previously. But oh, yeah. I, yeah, it's just to me like that just really opens up like this whole new type of application that I could think about writing that I I wasn't aware of before. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, Rich talked about when he uh, unveiled ClojureScript, he talked about one of its benefits being that JavaScript had reach. And sure, there are utilities that I would like to build that I could probably use Clojure for. But there aren't as many of those as there are ones that I would want to use ClojureScript for Mm -hmm. uh, or something that runs in a browser. So that's been a lot of fun. And, I, I mean, I enjoy building tools for myself that are solving a real problem for me and using that as a way to, uh, to learn. And so this was, this was one of those things. Awesome. Um, so I, maybe one more of the pleasant surprises if you've, mm-hmm. still got, if you've still got one on your list. And then there's something else I actually want to talk to you about too. So Yeah, sure. Um, I'll go briefly back to the debugging uh, one, and then I'll share one other example. So debugging is really a subset of... Uh, a larger item, which is JavaScript runtime tooling. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other examples that I've run into, um, and and it's been pleasant there as well. B- basically, the conclusion that I've come to uh, so far is that if you're worried about how you would do something in ClojureScript that involves runtime tooling, and I'm making a distinction between that and, say, your IDE, mm-hmm. right? Like your IDE that helps you do JavaScript syntax is going to be of no use to you <laughs> when it comes to ClojureScript syntax. Well, we've got Emacs. What else yeah. could you need? We won't go there. <laughs> but the, the tools that you use for working with JavaScript, um, in my experience, range from uh, good enough to pretty darn good when working with ClojureScript. Mm. So that's been cool. Uh, And debugging is just one of those examples. One of the other pleasant surprises, uh, right now ClojureScript is about 13 months old. It had its one-month birthday back in July, or one-year birthday back in uh, July. Mm -hmm. And seeing something like that, it's hard to know what quality to expect in it. And, And especially, again, as somebody that was coming to ClojureScript learning closure script and learning closure uh, at the same time that felt a little risky i thought to myself okay well maybe i'm going to be writing something and i think it's a problem with my code but it's actually a bug in closure script how often am i going to be spending time tracking down issues like that and how much is that going to a either be frustrating or b downright interfere with one of my goals which is learning closure script and so i was worried about that and 
Uh, the pleasant surprise was that in the time that I've been working with ClojureScript, which is uh, several months now, I've only run into, uh, this is, I guess I started back in March, so quite a few months. I've only run into one bug. So that's not to say that there were no bugs, right? That is one bug. And it's not the only bug that has come up in ClojureScript uh, along the way, but it's the only one that's bitten me mm-hmm. in any way. And so I went on the Closure Script mailing list. I think it was a Monday night at like 7.30. And, you know, I expect not a lot of response on a Monday night at 7.30. And I reported the issue. I'm like, here's what I'm seeing. Uh, here's what I think is going on. And I'd have been totally happy uh, to get a response the next day. Somebody saying, yes, either that is an issue or no, you silly newbie. Uh, <laughs> you're doing this wrong. But... This is ClojureScript, and ClojureScript has David Nolan in the mm. community. Yeah. And that could not stand. Yeah, how did I know you were going to say his name? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I mentioned that, that uh, I posted that at like 7.30 on a, on a Monday night, and I want to say it was like 42 minutes later I got a response from him. And it wasn't just a response saying, I'll look into that, or, you know, patch is welcome, or something like that. It was... Thanks, I've fixed it. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, pull down the latest from Master, and you're all set. And, and sure enough, I pulled it down, and, and it was taken care of. He is awesome. I mean, he's done a lot of work on Closure Script. I think he's even. Um, I'm pretty sure he's the guy that's been doing uh, implementations of persistent collections. Mm-hmm. That in, is true. Yeah, and and which is a huge addition to to the Closure Script language. And, and it was a big delta between Closure and Closure Script, but mm-hmm. those are. Uh, at least partially implemented now, which is fantastic. And this is from the same guy who also did Core Logic and Core Match. And I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I said to you before, I would love to have him on the show. I'd love to mm-hmm. ask him if he wants to come on sometime next time we're in the same place. Yeah, and the, uh, specifically the the persistent data structures. I can't do it justice without showing some slides and talking through why that's useful. But the immutability and the persistent data structures go into my slam dunk category. Yeah, though that actually is a great question I want to ask you as someone who has come to Clojure relatively recently, mm-hmm. even if it's via Clojure script. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, for me, my journey was, you know, oh, this is a really interesting line. I was interested in lists in general. Um, but then when I'm looking at Clojure, it was like, hey, it looks like it's got all these concurrency features. And that seems like the really big sell. And so I came in and I spent a bunch of time learning those. But, um, you know, as I've stayed with the language, um, the things that I love are the immutability, right? Really, I mean, that's, the, that's probably the biggest thing is this, this whole idea of immutability. Um, now, what's your, since you came to it from ClojureScript, where the concurrency constructs, there's a, there's a mutation construct in Atom that has concurrency semantics in mm-hmm. Clojure, but, I mean, it sounds like you were like, yep, immutability is the bomb, you know? It, it made a big difference, and I, it's unfortunate that I really can't do it justice I, just by talking through it, yeah, like why, it, yeah. why it made a difference right. to this particular app, uh, but it, it has made a difference to this app, and it's affected how I code in general. Yep. I mean, there are a lot of times when I'm back in Ruby land and I'm intentionally avoiding mutating things mm-hmm. because I've, I've seen the benefits of, of trying to avoid that. Yeah, and I know I... I, I I hope nobody listening to the podcast is tired of me saying how much I like working with Atomic, either because they can't or because they're just tired of it. But I, I mean, this is one of the things about working with Atomic too is that whole idea of, um, you know, let's use immutability and see and see change as a ser- as a sequence of values. That's just it really is is really truly enabling. Um, 
if anybody hasn't watched Rich's, and maybe have you watched Rich's Value of Values talk? It's at the top of my list. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah, you know, like pretty much anything he puts out there, but that mm-hmm. it's definitely a good one. So that was from um, Go to Copenhagen, I think. I think so. I don't remember where it was from. Mm-hmm. I watched it online. I wasn't there for it. So we'll, we'll put it in the show notes wherever it was from. Yeah, cool. So, um, all right. Well, that's awesome. Um, but I, I can't have you here. Um, you know, we're actually sitting across from each other. Uh, I'm in Durham for once. Um, and not ask you a bit about uh, uh, Jason Rudolph, the relevancer. I mean, you're, the stuff you've been talking about with Closure Trip, that's really cool to hear about. But um, so I, we worked together a lot when I first came to the company. We haven't, unfortunately, worked together too much since then. Um, the, a couple things I want to ask is, first of all, um, as a guy who, uh, you know, so I asked you right up front, I said, what's your, what's your job, right? And maybe role, I don't forget the wording I used, but you know, you, uh, you're a developer. When we first started working together, you were actually playing the role of coach. It's true. Um, and you've since switched. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of touches on two related topics, which is one kind of what was that, you know, what was that journey for you? Like what, what motivated you to make that switch? What was your experience? And then the other one is, you know, we've had a lot of people on the show who, where we've talked about the idea of roles. We had Michael Parento and, and, you know, he fills the role of designer, but he's a pretty darn technical designer. We had, we had Jamie. I mean, you know, I don't think you go to most places, and the person who knows the most about CSS is also able to use Git, for example. Um, and then recently we had um, Jamie Kite on the show. I haven't put that one out yet, but that'll be out soon. I'm not sure whether it'll be before or after this one. But um, And when we first met her, we thought, oh, well, she's a designer. She has really strong design skills. But coming in the door, she's like, no, I'm a developer. And, mm-hmm. and she obviously is, um, although clearly, you know, she could be successful in either uh, a job is the wrong word, but in either role. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and that's a lot of words for me. But, I mean, what's, what was your, having filled those two, you know, titles, what, what's your take on all this? So I'll start by talking about the journey. And I think that informs some of my opinions about the latter part. Uh, first of all, I... I have such respect for the people that have that massive breadth. Uh, I wish I had the level of breadth that people like Jamie and Clinton uh, and our design team has. Yes, our design team is the most technical design team that I've ever worked with. It is it is fantastic to see them sling Rails code as uh, and then go back to Photoshop and then yeah and, and then go and and actually all of their cases go home and paint right. <laughs> Yeah, or, or I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the same thing on the closure side. Oh, I was in, I fixed up your hiccup templates. Hey, thanks. It's on a branch. Oh, awesome. I'm going to go do some totally awesome art. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So I'll talk about the journey. When I joined Relevance, we were small, as we mentioned. <laughs> yeah. And so whenever you're in a really small company like that, saying that you have any one particular job or one particular title just just doesn't work like the company's not going to go anywhere if everybody is trying to silo themselves sure. and do a certain set of responsibilities and so the way it tended to go back in the the early days was that we would have usually two people on a project usually a pair and we would have some percentage of that pair dedicated to what are typically thought of as the project management type duties. And so, for example, if I were on that team, I might be spending uh, 25 or 30% of my time working on uh, client relationship relationship type stuff or other things that weren't strictly development. 
And when I say strictly development, I am talking about like business analysis, actually writing code, doing code review. Like I'm not talking just typing into the computer for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And we kept that model for, for a while. And as we continued to grow, we got to a point where we were having more and more developers. And one of the, one of the benefits of surrounding yourself with uh, amazingly technical people is that you can take on more and more technically challenging projects. Um, but some of the most talented technical people uh, don't have a lot of interest in doing the more project management related things or um, don't see some of the things that other people that have some project management experience can see. And so we, we've, we realized that we couldn't continue to scale out the way we wanted to. And there were projects that we were excited about, uh, things that we were clients that we were excited about helping. And just, we wanted to, to grow the company so that we could work with these other developers. So what are we going to do in that situation? Well, we had a few folks that were, willing to do the project management stuff uh, full-time if necessary and that we thought were uh, capable enough of it <laughs> uh, and, I, and I was in that bucket and so at the time uh, Maness and I took on the role of what is now known as coach and and instead of being mostly a developer with some portion of our time dedicated to uh, project management or client relation type things Instead, that became our full-time job, and we spread ourselves across multiple projects, um, and that was the capacity that you and I started working together in. Uh, in your case, we got that project got up to the point where you know there were six people on that project that were devs plus me um, as a coach, and then I had two other projects at the same time, and so we kept going with that that model for a while. And I certainly enjoyed what it, what it allowed us to do at Relevance. I enjoyed who it allowed us to bring on. We got to, got to work with even more uh, and more uh, technical people that I respect greatly, and, and they stretch me. It's awesome. And we kept that model for a while, and we, we eventually started adding more coaches. And, you know, about a year and a half into it, uh, so I guess I should step back brief, briefly. Uh, the way we got into that situation was because that's what we thought relevance needed. And I said, I'm willing to wear that, wear that hat uh, for relevance. It was never something I was passionate about and certainly not something I would ask, uh, can I please do this? I would ch- Not something I would change companies to go do, sure. but I cared deeply about relevance and wanted to see us uh, succeed there. So it, w- it, was a, it was a hat that I put on, a role that I wore for a while. Well, we started adding more coaches, and we saw that uh, you know people that were had real world project management experience and were excited about being project managers. Right? We want people that are passionate about what they're doing, that want to be doing what they're doing. Like the, you get the best results when somebody wants to be doing the job that they're doing. And we saw that we were able to successfully bring in uh, people that that cared deeply about project management and have them fill the coach role, and. You know, in more and more conversations and, and sort of as I was observing things in my life, I, I, I realized more or remembered more uh, where I wanted to be, what I wanted to be doing, and thought that there might be an opportunity to pursue that. One of the things that really would always stand out to me is I would hear people talking about some technical book that they had just read, or I would hear somebody talking about some new tech that they were trying out, and if it was a book, I would immediately want to like sit down and read it page by page, line by line, cover to cover, right? I just really wanted to dig in and just enjoy every second of it. 
And I would also hear people talk about uh, agile-related books or process-related things or leadership things about like how you should run a company. And whenever I would hear about those things, I always wanted to have already read that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good filter. I start asking myself that question. Is this a book that I want to read or a book that I want to have read? That's right. a really good uh, heuristic. Yeah. And, you know, finally, after, after sort of observing that for a while and seeing that we were able to, to bring more coaches on, you know, I, I talked to uh, Maness and I talked to Justin Getland and I said, you know, here's something I would like to do. The reason I came to Relevance really was to work with you know, developers that were more talented than me using the sharpest tools that we could, uh, solving, solving real problems for our clients. And I wanted to, to get back to being hands-on and learning. And everybody was really receptive to that, and we were able to do it over... Uh, it, took, it took about a year from the time that I initially talked to them, um, but we were able to uh, hire more people, and I was able to uh, work with those coaches as they came on and help them get spun up on new projects. And as my projects ramped down, we were gradually able to, to make that happen, which is just fantastic. I mean, to be back doing something that I am excited to come to work every single day uh, and excited to go home and like dig in more to it. Just That's great. I'm I'm super happy for you, man. Such an awesome feeling. And to work somewhere where you can make those significant shifts. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, Without having to have a conversation about, well, if you do that, uh, that means you'll be an E2. And right now you're an E1 and that's a real problem. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if you indulge me in a story for a minute, but I remember my first job uh, was at a company that was growing very, very quickly. I think we went from 500 people when I joined to 3,000 about four years later, wow. which is a similar pace to relevance, <laughs> but you know, at a, 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 a different part of the scale. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. anyway, so uh, that's a discussion for another time perhaps. But, but we had a new CIO come in, and um, she was sitting down with everybody in the IT department, which I was a member of. And one of her questions was something along the lines of, uh, you know, how can I help you be successful? And my answer to her was, uh, never promote me, right? Mm-hmm. Which, so, you know, I won't name any names, but she had come in from um, a company where, let me just put it this way. It's pretty clear that she was the CIO because she was wanted to be the C-something-else-O of someplace bigger. Mm-hmm. And so... It just I think it just floored her. But for me, it was like, I want to make things, right? Like, I, I want to be an engineer. And, and at this company, I don't, not talking about relevance, the company I was at, climbing up meant climbing out. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the cool things about relevance is the idea that you can separate, you know, growth from, um, I'll call it advancement, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't have to climb a ladder to get better. Absolutely. So that's very cool. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but there's one more thing that I have to talk to you about because anybody that has ever worked with you or probably spent uh, any five minutes interacting with you knows, which is that um, you are a very organized person, uh, which was really awesome. I'm, I'm, I haven't dev with you. I'd really like to. I hope we get a chance to do that sometime in the near future. Mm-hmm. But um, when you were coach for my project, it was great because you could, you could know that um, you know, Jason wasn't going to let us drop anything on the floor. And it really pushed me to to you know get stuff done so that you you wouldn't have to come along and say hey did you did you answer this email did you take care of this did you take care of that but but um you know i think i described you to your face as um, a productivity nerd mm-hmm. uh, do you think that's a fair characterization 
I think for the most part, that's a fair characterization. Uh, it, it really, a lot of it comes back to something that I think you touched on just a moment ago, which is deep down inside, like I never want to be in a situation where I've told you that I'm going to do something for you. And then you have to come ask me why I didn't get it done. Like, yeah. I don't want, I don't want to let people down. Right. I, preferably I'd like to exceed your expectations, but the last thing I want to do is let you down. So if I tell you, Hey Craig, I'm going to uh, send you a link to that amazing song that we played at the uh, at the beginning of the show uh, by Friday. I want to make sure that I get that to you, and I don't, I don't want you to have to come to me on Saturday and say, "Hey, man, why why are you holding me up?" Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where some of my motivation comes from. And you know, I look for I look for techniques that uh, that help me support that. Yeah, you should you should talk about that a little bit because I mean I've seen you. Um, I mean I think. I'm guessing that you are constantly tweaking your personal process, but what are, sure. in terms of where you're at now, like what are the things that you use to, to keep you on track? And um, I would say from, from a tool standpoint, and you know, there's more to it than just tools, but from a tool standpoint, one of the things that's been most useful to me is remember the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a free offering. Uh, if you want to get a good experience on your mobile device, then uh, I think the, the professional version is like $30 a year. I want to say it's only $12 a year. It's really cheap. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's totally worthwhile for me, for yep. sure. And there is a uh, there is a version of the mobile app that you can use um, that it, that is free. It's just, it has some limitations. But one of the things that I've really liked about that is that it makes it super easy to, to capture things. So we're sitting here, and I, I tell you that I'm going to send you a link to this song by Friday. I can very easily capture that. Uh, that, you know, they have a web app that makes it easy, but uh, the mobile experience is also very uh, important to me. And you, you mentioned uh, being a productivity nerd. I, I especially like their their syntax mm-hmm. for capturing things. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's all sorts of things about a task, like when is it due? Uh, maybe I have some tags related to it to help me search or categorize. Uh, where do I want to be when I'm doing it? Location. Um, is there a URL associated with it? Are there notes associated with it? Does it repeat? Things like that. All of those things are things that you can do with uh, with an easy bit of syntax. So, you know, I would pull out the app on my phone and say, uh, send link to Craig space caret FRI. Mm-hmm. And that would uh, set a reminder that would report to me that it was due by Friday. And, you know, I would see that throughout the week and I would definitely see it on Friday. I tend to look for things that uh, are due on that particular day. And I tend to not let myself get in a situation where anything that's due on a given day couldn't be accomplished on, on that particular day. So all the different aspects that I talked about, like how often it repeats and what list it goes into, those are all things that there are nice syntax shortcuts for as well. So that's really handy. And being able to capture things like that uh, has, has made a big difference for me. And then, you know, I'll go on a daily basis. So every morning when I get started, I'll look at my list and see the things that I need to do. And, you know, hopefully it's just a a couple things. There are times when there are uh, quite a few things on there. And I usually look ahead enough such that I don't find myself with more things that I can get done or that have to be done on that particular day. But I might be looking at my list and and see that uh, I've got two things that have to be done today, one thing that would be nice to be done today, and a couple things that could wait. And I'll try to to force myself to pick like the top three, at most, important things to get done. 
And if I get more done than that, that's awesome. But I really want to knock those out first. So that sort of that sort of recon, recognizing my limits, I think, also helps me um, helps me earn the reputation that you're talking about. Yeah, well, well deserved too. I mean, we worked together for I think we were saying at some point today it may have been like a record length, right? For for <laughs> some for people staying on it, other than coaches mm-hmm. staying on a single project. So mm-hmm. we worked rather extensively. But so the the thing that you said that jumped out at me though was uh, you said there you, you try to do like three things because mm-hmm. I've used Remember the Milk um, mm-hmm. and. Um, I have not been very good about staying with it, but for a little while I would. And it was interesting that I kind of settled on the same number. It seemed like three was, I, I had a, a tag that I would apply. These are the things I'm going to do today, mm-hmm. um, which maybe there was a better way to handle that, but that's where I was at. And, uh, I, I tried to keep it to three and, uh, I don't know if there's something magic about that number or if it's just, well, if there are three things that take eight hours, that's no good. Well, it's right? true, yeah. Um, but, yeah, something about three has felt good to me. Mm-hmm. And you do have to do that reality check. When you're looking at the three, you need to decide whether those are actually doable today. Uh, but you'll remember the days when we used to have the entire company get together around the table in the morning and talk yeah. about what they were going to do. And we would even do it on Fridays, mm-hmm. um, which are our, our self-directed 20% time days. Uh, And that's where people have had a whole week of things that they're interested in digging into. And so you've got all this enthusiasm on Friday morning and you would have somebody rattle off, you know, the six things that they were going to work on. And it it got to the point where I would just call them out and be like, "Okay, which three of those are you actually going to to focus on today? And, you know, I call shenanigans if you think you're going to get any more done than that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that. My Friday list is frequently far exceeds the capability of, of getting all that stuff done. But one of the things, so speaking of the Friday list, one of the things that I think is really interesting that has emerged is, and I, and I think you have been a champion of this and um, Stuart Sierra has participated as well. And it's really been a totally grassroots thing. Nobody ever said, I am going to do this. You'll, you'll often send out an email late on Thursday night or early Friday morning saying, here is my Thursday or here's my Friday plan. And yes, it will often be longer than you can get through. But one of the things that I think is really cool from like an agile and accountability standpoint is that people will often come back at the end of the day on Friday and say, this is what I actually got done. And, and they'll, they'll re-enumerate what their plan was mm-hmm. and what they actually did. It's like, please see how I have deviated from my yep, plan. <laughs> absolutely. No, I totally do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but I think, I mean, I, I would be... I would be m- I'm definitely less concerned about that happening on Friday because part of it is it's a discovery process, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are times definitely where I do exactly that. Like I'm going to work on these three things, and I work on one of them and two others that weren't on the, that list, and that probably wasn't like the best use of my day. Um, but that's actually part of the reason why I started sending out the email was, um, you know, just when you say you're going to do something, I'm, I'm I'm like you. I don't want to say I'm going to do something and then not do it. Mm-hmm. And just kind of sending an email out um, was a way of getting myself to stick to it a little bit more than I might otherwise. The other thing is I feel like as we've become more dispersed, um, you know, if I were here, I would totally come to the, the office. And in fact, this Friday I will be here, uh, which is great. Um, but, you know, Friday, every other day of the week, I mostly pair. Uh, not always, but mostly. And then on a Friday, I'm, I'm by myself. And so that's there's a there's a sense of community. Oh, look, somebody else was also sitting at their desk working on interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And even to the extent of, you know, people will send out links. So I, I checked out this video it was really cool, and so I should I should do that too. So so yeah, I, I like that idea. I guess the the one other thing that I would say about 
earning the reputation of being organized is I think I say no to more things mm. than the average person. And so I, <laughs> that helps my reputation, but it, it doesn't like, I'm not actually getting more done than other people. <laughs> I'm just committing to less, Sure, you know? And I think it's helpful to really be honest about that. And it's, it's hard to say no, like we want, everybody wants to please. And there are things you might ask me for your help with something. And like, I do want to help you. It's just that in order to help you, I'm choosing to not do something else. And I have to be willing to set aside this, you know, this other collection of things and recognize that opportunity cost. And I think we respect each other enough. Like as like everybody at the company, we respect each other enough that we have to be willing to say no. And it's not just that I don't have time for that, but, um, I'm not going to make time for that. Yeah. I mean, I actually asked you, I mean, I think you're, uh, there was actually an incident where I asked you for some feedback. I said, Hey, um, I know you listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any, first of all, I think I was asking if you wanted to be on, which (laughs) I'm glad you finally agreed. It's it's been, it's been, uh, definitely you've been on the the short list of people I want to have on, but, but I said, uh, you know, do you have any feedback? And, um, you came back to me with an answer, an answer, which was, um, I haven't devoted the time that would be required to give you meaningful, deep feedback. Nothing jumps out at me, uh, and I was I was very pleased with that. I, I mean, you know, because uh, uh, everything's great is um, only a slight step up from n- no response at all. Mm-hmm. And to know that you just weren't you weren't going to devote the time to it right now, that's fine, right? I, I totally. I mean, asking you to volunteer to help me, it's like. You know what else could you expect? So just kind of knowing where you're at is is good communication. And I also care deeply about feedback, and I think that it's valuable to recognize that useful feedback actually does take time to to really think about, and for me to be able to give you uh, specific things that I found to be interesting about the podcast and why I found them to be interesting. Hey, Craig, um, you were talking to Clinton about development tools, and he mentioned Pry, and I thought that was interesting because why? Because I want other people that are listening to it to know that relevance is a place that uh, that uses the latest tools, and, and I think that's great from a recruiting perspective, or, or what what did I find beneficial about sure. that? Um, so that so that you know very specifically why I appreciated it and that you can use that to, uh, as you make future decisions about the directions that you want to uh, take the podcast in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, this has been an awesome conversation and I know that we could continue because we didn't even touch on, for example, running. And I, that was something <laughs> I wanted to head on my list to talk to you about. Uh, I'm sure we could talk more about productivity. It would be really cool to have you back on and hear about uh, further learnings you've made about either closure or closure script or anything else. Um, uh, so I would, I would definitely like to have you back. I hope you'd be up for coming back on the. I'd love to. All right, cool. So um, uh, before we before we sign off, then uh, I just want to make sure I give you the the last word. Which um, if there's anything that you want to promote or make people aware of, it give you a chance to do that. I mean, I, I hope in the in the show notes that we send out that we'll uh, we'll send a link to uh, the list of resources that uh, that I have for the ClojureScript app that I worked on, uh, just so people have access to that. But sure, absolutely. Sort of the the encouragement that I would that I would give people is that if you're if you're on the fence about whether to try ClojureScript, like go for it, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's just this mode like we were talking about before of building something that has no server component to yeah, it. Yeah, that's and, pretty cool. Uh, uh, 
deploy anywhere, drop it on Dropbox. Like that's been a lot of fun, and it, it's really helped me to identify specific tools that I could build for myself and then use that as a springboard for exploring some technology. So. Yeah. And it's an easy on road to mobile, which I think is really convenient too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, cool. Um, so of course there's one more question, which is what we're in about 10 seconds here. We're going to start playing some music and you're the one that picks it. So uh, what are people going to hear? Well, let's go out with some, uh, feel good, a feel good country song. Um, with just the right mix of storytelling and country music cliches. Uh, let's do Good Directions by Billy Currington. All right, all right. Well, there's definitely been a, a, a dearth of country music on the show, so good to see that you're correcting that. We'd like <laughs> in to some cover. people's opinions. Well, uh, we're going to cover all the bases in any event, so thanks again a ton for coming on the show, Jason. I really thanks enjoyed it. Absolutely. I need, I, I, like I said, we will do it again. Um, so I will thank you one more time. Thank you very much, and also thank our listeners. This has been Think Relevance, the podcast. Catch y'all next time. She had to be thinking this is where it next come from. She had Hollywood written on her license plate. She was lost in looking for the interstate. Needing directions. And I was a man for the job. I told her way up yonder past the caution light There's a little country store with an old coke sign You gotta stop in and ask Miss Bell for some of her sweet tea Then I'll ask, we'll take...